And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. Who are all of us, who are all of us here alive today? The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. On to chapter 6, verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to, to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall, talk to, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the, uh, the first talk now. We're going to be uh, spending well, 10 weeks, I suppose, in the Ten Commandments. There's, there's one commandment a week. And uh, I put it to you, actually, that this morning is probably the most important one out of all of them. And uh, yes, that'll, that'll teach the people who are all away today um, not to miss Sundays, right? Because this is really important. I say this every Sunday. This is really important. But this really is the most important one. And uh, or rather the foundational commandment out of all the ten. So um, hopefully they'll be able to catch up online um, later on in the week. We put all of our sermons online, by the way, so if you ever uh, miss out or want to hear some of the, what we've been chatting about over the last few months, then you can just go on uh, to iTunes or Spotify or just online on the, on the website, um, and you can listen up there as well. Okay, so we're going to be looking today. It's going to be a broad um, sort of understanding or a broad teaching about the Ten Commandments, first of all, and how they sort of fit together, and we're going to be examining also the first commandment as part of that. So it's really just an introduction, um, but I hope I just wet the whistle and show you, uh, set the scene really for the next few uh, weeks as we spend going through the Ten Commandments, right? So we're going to be looking at the role of the Ten Commandments, number one. We're going to be looking at the context of the Ten Commandments, that's really important. Uh, we're going to be looking at the chief of the Ten Commandments and finally the gospel of the Ten Commandments, okay? So the role, the context, the chief, and the gospel of the Ten Commandments. So first of all, what is, what is the role? What is the role of the Ten Commandments, and why are we going to spend the next ten weeks studying it as a church? Uh, why is it so important? Well, uh, if you want to understand uh, a big section, a major chunk in the Bible called the law, then the best place to start is the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because the Ten Commandments are sort of like the summary or the headline for the entire law code that occupies a significant portion in the Old Testament. Um, that, that is God's will for his people, that God states and explains 
And, and later, as the Bible continues in the Old Testament, uh, the law is reapplied. It is sung about. People write poetry about it. It is meditated on. The law uh, provides the basis for reform. Uh, the law provides the basis for revival of God's people. Uh, it is the guidelines on how to live for God, how to become a people of love and justice and purpose. In short, the Ten Commandments are the most famous, the most foundational, uh, the most fundamental part of Old Testament religion. That's why it's important for us to, to get our heads around it. And if we want to understand the Bible, then we have to understand the law. But not only is it about the Old Testament here, just so you know, but the backdrop for New Testament Christianity and for the local church is all set in the Old Testament law. So for us to understand the Christian message, uh, to understand the Christian gospel, to understand the work of Jesus, uh, how we should live as Christians, we have to trace it right back to the law. And that's why we're spending such a lot of time on the Ten Commandments over the next ten weeks or so. But for some people, the Ten Commandments are embarrassing, to say the least embarrassing and, and and as we read through over the next few weeks you'll maybe start to see why there are lots of critics out there these days who just say that the ten commandments are horribly out of date they might have been okay for for primitive people you know hundreds or th thousands of years ago okay for them but for us today in the modern western 21st century enlightened society the ten commandments are demeaning they, they, they lack some really important issues that, 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 as far as we see it here in the, in the contemporary West, there are things that are not mentioned that, that should be in the top ten, right? It is, it is very unbalanced. In fact, others uh, would go as far as saying that it just describes a cranky deity who uses threats to coerce you to obedience. God is going to get you unless you obey the commandments. There's a famous... Um, a member of the, the movement called the New Atheists, a man called Christopher Hitchens. He was a writer, and he wrote an article in Vanity Fair um, in 2010. And he examined and gave his sort of exposition of the Ten Commandments. And he, he came to the conclusion that numbers one through to three can simply go. That is to love God and don't make an idol and don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Those three can go, he says, and this is a quote, since they have nothing to do with morality and they are no more than a long, rasping throat clearing by an admittedly touchy dictator. The mere fear, he says, of unseen authority is not a sound basis for ethics. That's Christopher Hitchens. He's not a, he's not a friend of Christianity. We could, we could easily say that. But that sort of sums up how some people view Old Testament religion, especially the Ten Commandments. Uh, in the New York Times in 2017, uh, it covered a story about a 32-year-old man called Michael Reed who um, decided one, one day that he would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, and destroy the monument outside the Arkansas Capitol building. And the monument had the Ten Commandments on it. And so he, he got up, he, he got into his car about four in the morning, he, he streamed it all on Facebook Live, and he uh, drove on the road, he mounted the curb, up on the grass, and he shouted, freedom! And then he smacked into this monument, it had only been put up the day before, and he smacked into it and dashed it to pieces. He did the same in 2014, apparently a few years earlier, in Oklahoma. Is that how we are to treat the Ten Commandments today? Do they, are, they, are they so horribly restricted and outdated, we just have to smash them up and say, freedom, freedom. Even Pope Francis 
uh, had to make a statement after this fake news article circulated in 2015 saying that the Pope himself intended to make changes to the Ten Commandments. This fake news article said that the Pope had added a prohibition on genetic engineering and he had actually removed the section on adultery. In fact, this fake news article went on to say that these new revised Ten Commandments had actually been engraved in a marble pillar somewhere in the Vatican. It was all made up, but again, it goes to show the attitude that some people have, and many people perhaps, to these Ten Commandments. So should we ditch the Ten Commandments? That's the question. Should we as a church concentrate our efforts on, on peace and love and, and following the words of Jesus? Is that what we should do and, and forget the rather embarrassing and awkward Old Testament stuff? Just ditch it. Unfortunately, though, folks, if you read the New Testament, even if you were to concentrate on the words of Jesus alone, you will realize that it is not so simple. We can't simply do away with the Old Testament. Why is that? Because the words that Jesus mentions, his teachings, were built thoroughly on the Old Testament law. So we can't understand Jesus in context unless we understand the law that he grew up with. And that, that he, he received. In fact, it makes no sense of anything Jesus said or did if we don't understand the Old Testament and specifically the, the Ten Commandments. On from that, should we ditch the Ten Commandments? Well, we won't understand the words of Jesus if we do that and his actions will make no sense to us. But on from that, the, the whole uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, we could say, that starts in the Old Testament and finds its completion uh, in the New and carries on through lots of thought and practice over the centuries, that entire tradition forms the backbone of, of our Western uh, moral and legal systems. Our systems of value and our culture has been heavily built and based upon the Judeo-Christian culture that we see in the Scriptures. So secular attempts to distance our, our current culture from the Ten Commandments and other parts of the Bible are unfortunately simply futile. Because if you travel outside of, of, of the West, or say you speak to someone from a non-Western background, they will tell you and you will see how Christian the West is to them from outside, an outside perspective. How radically different it is from a non-Western country. Even if many who identify within the West as non-religious, it is still highly um, colored by our Judeo-Christian heritage. We often find if you, if you, if you read uh, non-religious or secular people in their sort of uh, treatment of the Ten Commandments, unfortunately, they are so ignorant about the context into which it is spoken. And so what I hope to do uh, for the rest of this morning is show you the context of the Ten Commandments and then we can get into some of the, the nitty-gritty that just sets the pace for the rest of our series. Is that okay? So the role of the Ten Commandments, we need to understand it to understand not only the Old Testament but the New. We need to understand Jesus. We need to understand the church. Everything hangs on that. Let's first of all think about the context. What is the context of the Ten uh, James has read to us a few moments ago a section from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Uh, the word Deuteronomy or the book Deuteronomy refers to a second reading of the law. 
the second reading of the law. Why is it the second reading and what was the first reading? Well, a bit of a history lesson here, um, if that's okay. Um, Moses, who spoke these words that James read to us, was addressing Israel, the people of Israel, the children of God, before they crossed over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. Right? So it was a highly significant moment before they went into the Promised Land. Uh, the background is, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, is that uh, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. They were oppressed. And uh, God, through his leader Moses, sent plague upon plague to Egypt in order for Pharaoh to let the people of God go, right? Let my people go, as the song goes. Um, that culminated then in the Exodus, when hundreds of thousands of Israelites uh, left Egypt into the wilderness. They're only supposed to be in there for a few weeks at the most before entering the Promised Land. But as we read in the book of Exodus and, and Numbers, um, Israel en masse rebelled against God's loving rule in the wilderness. They're only just out of slavery and they chose to go against God and go it their own way. And so God, in response, said to them, you're going to wander around this desert, around this wilderness for 40 years. Why 40 years? So that that rebellious generation would die in the desert, and their children, who did not rebel against me, they will enter the promised land. And so this is the group that Moses addresses with the second reading of the law in Deuteronomy. It's the children of that first Exodus community, about to enter the promised land, fresh-faced, excited, ready to take possession of the promises of God. It is this group that Moses spoke the second law to, the second reading of the law to. And so it begins with the ten words, with the ten commandments. And so he says, you can look, look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the start of the reading of the law proper. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Hear them, learn them, be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. That's another word for Mount Sinai. It's the same place. Didn't make it with our fathers, but with us today. All of us who are alive. This ongoing covenant. We'll think about that in a little, little while. With us. Not just with your fathers and your parents who rebelled. But with you and every subsequent generation. My covenant with you uh, is ongoing. And God spoke, it says in verse 5, from the fire up the mountain. That's how he spoke. And I'm giving you these words again, says Moses. So those who say that the, the Old Testament, or rather the, the Ten Commandments, are outdated and embarrassing, are naive, unfortunately, to the context into which they were spoken. A bit more background work, if that's all right, just to set all this up. A um, bit of history. In the ancient Near East, around the time, you know, surrounding centuries, uh, around the time when all this action was taking place in the Old Testament, there were many treaties that were made um, called suzerain treaties. Uh, and a suzerain treaty is where there's a superpower, you know, a powerful nation or a powerful king, and they would make um, peace with a, a small nation or a small tribe. 
and they would make a covenant with that tribe. And you can read them, and the, the Hittite uh, treaties are, are available to read online. Um, you can read them today, and they resemble something of what we're seeing here in the Old Testament. And what, what happens in these treaties? Well, they set out obligations for both parties. You know, they say, uh, great, great king, uh, so-and-so, I have delivered you from all of your troubles. Uh, I have all power. God has equipped me to do this. Uh, I'm going to do this for you, and therefore in response, O oh, little nation, you do this back for me. And that's how we're going to relate to one another. And this is all written down. It's written down in law codes uh, with, with uh, responsibilities and stipulations. There's blessings for obedience. There's curse uh, for disobedience. And this is uh, something that we see, of course, uh, reflected um, in some form in the book of Deuteronomy, these covenant law codes that, that are kept between a strong um, king, if you like, and a smaller country. But what we're reading here in the Ten Commandments are more than regulations. And that's why I wanted James to read um, Deuteronomy 6 as well. So you can cast your eye, flip over the sheet, and see on the back of it, um, we've seen verse 3, 4, and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today, referring back to the Ten Commandments, shall be on your heart. And you're to teach your kids these words. And you're to talk about these words. And you're to meditate on these words. These words that I give you are to form the basis of your community. So it's more than just simply rule-keeping and box-ticking to keep God happy. For the people of Israel in this covenant relationship with God, God for them is to be their highest love, their, their deepest desire. They are to model the values to the world around. So far from being this restrictive and embarrassing set of um, laws for Israel to keep, God expects these laws, these commands, to be life-giving, to be community-giving, community-building. They are to provide a, a stable and a free basis for a new society. And this is to apply to all generations, as we have seen, not just to the ones who heard it first, but to their children and their children and their children. Pass it on, pass it on. Because this stuff, when you live in it, says God brings you life. So let's look a bit more specifically. We've thought about the, the general context of the Ten Commandments in the background of Israel's history and, and the types of covenants that were being made in that time politically around that area. But let's look specifically at, then at the words. In verse 6 of chapter 5, this is where it starts formally. I am... The Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's how it starts. And this is so important. This is so important. We've gone from the general context to the specific context of the, the Ten Commandments. Don't forget, Israel, for 400 years or plus or minus, were, were slaves. They were oppressed. They were in the, in the land of Egypt. They were effectively ruled uh, by the gods of Egypt, so to speak. The Egyptian might and power and their religion were crushing and pushing down on the people of Israel. And God says to Israel, I have set you free from all of that. I have saved you. And I've not brought you out into the wilderness to give you more oppression and make your lives worse and give you more laws. I have brought you out so that you can be free. So that you can be free to enjoy me and to know me. 
the gods of Egypt were overcome. They were ridiculed publicly. You know, the gods and the goddesses of Egypt were de- depicted, and you can still see them um, in, in sort of ancient um, art. They were depicted with the head of a cow or the head of a frog, so to speak. And yet, do you remember during the plagues, the frogs were everywhere, and then they were killed, and there was a stench, the dying frogs. And there was another plague where all the hail came and killed all the cattle and the cows. And again, time and again, uh, this wouldn't have been lost on Egypt. Yahweh, the God of Israel, was overcoming the gods of Egypt. That's what was going on. And so at the start of our Ten Commandments, God is reminding Israel, don't forget, folks, I saved you. It's as if God is saying to his people, stand back and let me win you. Watch this. Allow me to save you. This is the kind of God who makes a covenant with Israel. I chose you. God says to Israel, I decided to set my love upon you. I sought you out. You were not mighty. You were not beautiful. You were not strong. You were not successful. I loved you because I loved you because I loved you. And I have shown you my love. I have demonstrated to you my love by saving you, by binding myself to you in words of this covenant. I'm giving myself to you rather like a marriage where one party gets up and and gives promises to the other and and that's returned. God is essentially marrying his people. He's saying, I have come down. I have come down into your problems. I've come down to rescue you. I'm going to cherish you. Till death do we part. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. I'm going to bring you into the promised land of freedom and justice. That's what I'm going to do for you. See, before any requirements, before any laws are given, any commandments are spoken, God is clear. There is grace. I have rescued you. I have taken the first step. God lowers himself down to the human level. And it is the exact same today, folks. God comes down to the human level. He enters into our problems. God writes himself into the story of his people's history. He takes their troubles onto himself. Far from being the crazy uh, dictator that Hitchens caricatures God as God is demonstrated here as the doting husband. He is the loving father of his children. He is the reigning king. He is the victorious warrior. And he says to his people, Israel, I will be this and more to you. And I will give myself to you forever. You see, that is the context before we come to a single commandment. That's the God we're dealing with here. So we thought of the role of the Ten Commandments. And we're starting to piece together now the, the, the context of the Ten Commandments. Let's move on then thirdly, third out of four points. What is the chief of the Ten Commandments? The chief of the Ten Commandments is often uh, the first commandment. And any list really in the, in the Bible seems to be the way um, uh, that they are ordered and organized. The first one is the most important one. That's what I was getting at earlier. What is the chief of the ten? Verse 7 of chapter 5. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the chief commandment. This is the one that all the rest stand or fall upon. This is the fountainhead of the ten. 
it is negatively stated here, no other gods before me. It is positively stated in chapter 6, verse 5. We've read this together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. It's the same thing, just spoken positively. No other gods before me. I want your love. By the way, just, just in case you're, you're, you're wondering, this isn't God acknowledging that there are other gods for them to choose. We read this morning in our call to worship, God says, I am, I am God and there is no other. Right? But he says, you shall have no other gods before me. What he's saying to his people is, in your estimation, there shall be nothing greater, no one stronger, no one more wonderful than me in your hearts, in your minds. This he- the Hebrew word is, is a bit ambiguous. No other gods before me can also be translated, no other gods beside me, no other gods in my presence, no other gods before my face. There should be no one or nothing else that takes the affection of your heart. Me alone. That's the first commandment. I want your love exclusively. That's what God is saying. I don't want to share your love with someone else. Folks, we don't have here a God who has this sort of uh, jealousy complex, some sort of thin-skinned and easily offended Leader. Can you imagine if I said to, to my wife, darling, I, I love you, uh, but I love other women as well. But don't worry, I love you more than them. Do you think for a moment that she would be satisfied? Well, that's okay then, as long as you love me. Of course not. Of course not. We know this from human marriage, that it's about exclusive love and commitment to that one person. God is saying here, right at this this marriage ceremony in the Ten Commandments, look at what I've done for you. My love is exclusively given to you. I, I, I want your heart in return. I've shown you the extent of my sacrificial love, my exclusive love for you. I haven't done this for other nations or other tribes. Now give me your heart, God says. Give me your affections. Give me your devotion. This is not cold law keeping. See why context is so important. You can see why Hitchens gets it so wrong. This is not point scoring. This is not keeping the old man upstairs happy with this bunch of arbitrary rules. This is a full-blooded, passionate, emotional, heart, soul, and strength love for God. Seeing God as the highest joy, the greatest treasure, is delighting in him. It is being intoxicated by him. It is being thrilled by him, by being ravished in his love for us. Because that's what we are created for. Of course, as we will see over the next 10 weeks, there are responsibilities and requirements. There is a shape to that love that we we give. There are duties, but we have to get it in our heads that our duties are not primary when it comes to our relationship with God. Because the basis of our relationship with God is his love, his covenant love. Look at what I've done for you. Does that not grab your heart? You can, you can pick this stuff up, by the way, just from simply reading the Bible. It is not hard. It is there. Hitchens and, and those like him carefully avoid all of that to make the Ten Commandments sound as terrible as possible. They just don't take the time to read carefully and honestly. I'm not making this up. Please go and read it for yourself. 
The Ten Commandments, as we'll see over the next few weeks, are not arbitrary. Neither is the law of God in general an arbitrary law. Why these? Why these ten? Well, they are a reflection of God himself. God says time and again through the Old Testament, I am your God and you are my people. I am your God, you are my people. So how I am, what I'm like, my values, my my character, my behavior, you are going to reflect that when you love me and obey me and follow me and choose to delight in me. Don't forget, back in the creation of, of, of humankind in the Garden of Eden, remember it says that humankind were created in the image of God. God is saying here to the people of Israel, you are in the image of God, and this is what it will look like to the surrounding nations. Effectively, Israel, we could say, is God in human form. If the world wants to know what God is like, they should look at Israel and see what he's like. That's why the subtitle to this, this series is uh, ten, the Ten Words, and the subtitle is Living as a People of Love, Justice, and Purpose. Love, Justice, and Purpose. Because if we belong to God, if we are ravished by his love and, and give him our hearts in return, then we will become a people of love, justice, and purpose if we take this stuff seriously. That's what he will create us into. But it all begins here with this chief commandment of the ten, love God, God alone. And that's so important for Israel to hear that message before they enter the promised land. Because as the the time goes on and and the story rolls forward, we see that that was a, a massive struggle for Israel. There were so many other gods out there, so many other choices. Other nations had their gods. That pressure was always there. Are you going to love God with everything you got, or are you going to go after other lovers? And unfortunately, the Old Testament is one long, sorry narrative of unfaithfulness, time and again, going after other gods, coming back to God, going after more, coming back to God. Israel forsook her lover. It rejected its father. It rebelled against his king. I hope you're, I hope you're tracking with me so far. Uh, you're starting to see how all these things uh, fit Maybe up until now, um, this is quite plausible. You think, okay, good, God has done this, and it's pretty obvious that, that the people should respond in, in, in um, you know, obedience. But let's just think about that for a little moment, try and take that a little further. If that is the case, if God has done such amazing things, and he is the God he says he is in, in the Bible, then why is it that Israel struggled to keep the commandments? Maybe let's take that even a little step further and make it a little more personal. Why is it that we struggle to keep God's commandments. Why, why is it hard for us? Why do we struggle to love God with our heart, soul, and strength all the time with every beat of our heart, every minute of the day? Why do we struggle? Well, it's because these gods, so-called, these idols, as the Bible describes them, they have power in our lives. They had power in the history of <clears throat> Israel, These other gods are competing for our affections. They are alluring. They are attractive. They offer what we think we need. Israel went after other gods because they thought they had what Israel needed at that moment. They chose to trust in other things other than God who saved them. John Calvin, one of the famous reformers, said that the human heart is an idol factory. 
Isn't that a cheery thought? Your heart, he says, just churns, churns it out. Rather than going to God, we as people left to our own devices, rather than going to God as the source and provider of everything we need, we think we can get what we need somewhere else. It's either easier or more attractive or, or, or more easily accessible if we go somewhere else other than God. That was the original lie, right, of the snake in the Garden of Eden. Don't believe God, have it your own way. Some of us go after the idol of sex because we're looking for intimacy and connection and we think that that's where we get it from. Some of us go after the idol of money because we're looking for stability and security and we think that's where it comes from. Some of us are driven by the idol of power because we think that gives us affirmation and identity. Some of us is food, some of us is fitness, some of us is our family. Anything that we put in the place of God, trusting in that rather than what he can give, it's an idol, it's another God. And those things have power, they really do. They, we think that they can deliver, they can supply our needs. But the effect, as we see in the history, the sorry history of the people of Israel, the effect when we cling to other things other than God, is that we are taken back to slavery in Egypt. Israel found it to their great cost. We experience it in many different ways, far from the life and the fullness that we desire. Those idols turn on us. They control us and they enslave us. And then they crush us to the ground. Because we can never have enough power and influence. You can never have enough social media followers on Instagram. There's always more money to be made at work. There's always the next um, job offer. There's always more sexual conquests to achieve. You see, you are being controlled and owned by gods that are not the one true God. They've got you trapped. They will never fulfill. They will never completely satisfy. You'll always be hungry, always be thirsty. And when they're threatened, or worse still, when they are taken away, you will start to fall apart. You will become defensive and angry. Because that which you put your hope in is being threatened and taken away from you. That's why, that is why, this is the chief command, right? That's why this is the fountainhead for all the rest. That's why it's a question of the heart rather than a question of your willpower or your ability to tick boxes. Good little boys and girls can tick boxes and keep mommy or daddy happy. But is there heart in it? Because God shows that if this one gets screwed up, this commandment is screwed up, then all the rest fall down. Because we go after other gods, we believe their lies, and that leads us to do terrible things to people, using them as commodities, adultery, murderer, murdering, stealing, lying. All this stuff happens because we believe the lies of the idols, that we can get what we want. Christopher Hitchens thinks that we can ditch the first three commandments. But God says, ditch me, and the rest just unravels. So we've seen the, the role of the Ten Commandments. We've seen the context of the Ten Commandments. We've seen the chief of the Ten Commandments. And finally, I just want to end on the gospel of the Ten Commandments. We've seen how uh, influential, we start to think how influential the Ten Commandments are to, to Western civilization at the very least. 
And we've seen the first commandment, the fundamental one, God alone, no other. It's all about living in covenant blessing with God who gives obedience. And yet we've seen how Israel struggled, we struggle, our hearts go after anything other than God. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we save ourselves? Well, the Protestant reformers, I'll reference them again, um, they saw three uses of the law, the Old Testament law, right, and its application in, in, in the local church. First use of the law, number one, is it exposes our sin, exposes the badness within us. Okay, fine. Number two, it exposes, or shows us how we must live. Do this, don't do that. Okay, fine. But thirdly, this is most important for our purposes this morning. It shows us, the law shows us of our need for Christ. Shows us of our need for Christ. As we've been thinking, the Old Testament shows how Israel monumentally failed to keep their side of the covenant up. And rather like Michael Reed, that 32-year-old man in Arkansas, they smashed into the ten. They destroyed the ten. And they created an absolute mess. It was a total disaster. And so God eventually sent them away into exile. He said, enough, enough. Go from my presence. Despite warnings of the prophets, despite their preaching and their calling him back, they still continued in their rebellion. And yet the prophets also prophesied a new day, a new covenant. They said it's not like the old covenants. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were especially clear on it. They said, God is going to bring a new covenant. And in that new covenant, he's going to give you a new heart. And he's going to write the law on your heart. He's going to put his spirit within you. You won't be able to break it under the new covenant. You will never be sent out from God's presence in exile in the new covenant. That is what is coming said the Old Testament prophets. And how does that come to us? How does that happen? It happens through the gospel. Because there was one in Israel, there was one member of the people of Israel who did do it. Jesus, right? He's the true Israel, they call him. He succeeded where Israel failed. He loved God with his heart and his soul and his strength. He loved his neighbor as himself 100%. From his first breath to his dying breath, Jesus loved God, his Father. He delighted in him. He was his greatest pleasure. Jesus was utterly righteous. He perfectly lived the law of God. There's been no other like him before or since. And yet in the gospel, Jesus died as a lawbreaker. Can you believe that? He died under the curse of God. The the law itself says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And there is Jesus dying like a lawbreaker. He's hung on the tree, on the cross. But here's the gospel, folks. Don't miss this. Please do not miss this. Here is the gospel. It is the great exchange that takes place. Because in the gospel, our punishment for breaking the law was placed onto Jesus. And his righteousness for keeping the law was placed onto us. The Apostle Paul said in in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, For our sake, God made him 
to be sin who knew no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you catch what he's saying? He made Jesus to be sin, to take it on us, so that in him we might have his righteousness. That's the new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about. The Holy Spirit within us through faith in Jesus. And, and by faith in Jesus, you can enter into that great exchange. It is amazing. His ability to keep the law on you. His righteousness before God onto you. His perfections given to you. And your sin taken off of yourself. Your law breaking. Your mess ups. Your guilt onto him. And he took it to the grave and buried it. So that you could go free. That's the new covenant, folks. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. It's the gospel. You see, as we, we look at Jesus and as we delight in him and, and what he's done, as we, as we trust him, then we receive his spirit, we enter into the new kingdom, sorry, the new covenant, and he gives us a new heart. We will want to please God. We, we will have the power to live for God. We will be under the grace and favor of God. That is how people who come to faith in Jesus from all sorts of backgrounds can have such power for inner transformation. That's how they come under such radical change because they are given at that moment a new heart and a new power. That's how we relate to the Ten Commandments. So you too, if you put faith in Jesus, what can you expect? Well, you can expect that the more you understand that great exchange and what Jesus has done for you and how he lived the law for you, once you understand that, you will start to live the law of God, not, not under compulsion to keep the old man happy, but freely out of love for what he's done for you. If you get the gospel, you'll do that. But if we get the gospel as a church, we understand it. We become the people of love and justice and purpose. That's what we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. That's what happens when we start to understand this great exchange. Let me finish by a heart check, if I may. When you look at this first commandment, no other gods before me, love me with your whole heart and with all your strength and everything that is within you. May I ask you, is this true of you? Is this becoming more true of you if you are a believer in Jesus? Is this, are you growing in the obedience to this commandment? When you look at your life, honestly, are you in the process of moving, moving forward, loving God more, obeying him more, delighting in him more? Is that you? Do you say God alone, no other? Or would you say it is less than obvious in your life? Based on your own experience or maybe what people see in you? Is it less than obvious? Do you confess Jesus as your Lord? But it's not obvious that he is the delight of your heart. Maybe you feel trapped, enslaved. Patterns of behavior. Sins that have just worn deep gullies through your heart. 
Maybe you are living life simply outside of God's plan and you have no intention of changing that. May I encourage you this morning, as a church, as individuals sat here, let us look to Jesus. Because he says to us, through the word, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the house of slavery. I've given you power. I've given you victory. You access that, folks, through faith and trust, clinging to Jesus. So may I encourage you, give yourself to Jesus this morning. Let's come to him in faith. Let's come to him as we come to the table, the bread and the wine, which give us this pictorial, this graphic image of what Jesus has done for us. The bread, the body broken, and the wine, the blood poured out.